I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People constitutional podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we discuss the most interesting Supreme Court decision of the week involving drug-sniffing dogs in the Fourth Amendment. This week, the Supreme Court decided a case involving the constitutional powers of police dogs for the third time in two years. Writing for a 6-3 majority, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that Officer Morgan Strubble in Nebraska needed a search warrant to deploy, to deploy a dog called K-9-Officer. These adorable names are one of the delightful staples of these cases. A previous case involved a dog named Aldo. This case was called Rodriguez versus United States, and the question was how long can an officer delay using a dog after the person in the stop, in the stop has received a ticket? In this case, the dog was brought in about seven or eight minutes after the ticket was written. In an opinion joined by Chief Justice John Roberts and Justices Antonin Scalia, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan, Justice Ginsburg wrote, absent reasonable suspicion, police extension of a traffic stop in order to conduct a dog sniff violates the Constitution's shield against unreasonable seizures. There were dissents by Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, uh, joined by Justice Kennedy. And uh, joining me to discuss these fascinating cases and the question of dog searches and technological searches more broadly are two of the leading experts in America on criminal justice and the Fourth Amendment. I'm delighted to welcome to the We the People podcast my GW colleague, Oren Kerr. He is the Fred C. Stevenson Research Professor of Law at George Washington University. He's also a frequent contributor to the Volokh Conspiracy. Also, I'm so thrilled uh, to welcome Chris Slobogan, the Milton R. Underwood Chair in Law and Professor of Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University. He is also the director of Vanderbilt's Criminal Justice Program. And like Orrin Kerr, a contributor to the uh, thrilling Brookings uh, volume, uh, Constitution 3.0, Freedom and Technological Change. Uh, let's jump right in. Orrin, could you tell our audience what the majority held in Rodriguez and what its reasoning was? Well, the majority held, uh, as you said, that the, the police can't extend a traffic stop beyond the time for the safety-related aspects of a traffic stop. The basic idea is to say, when the police pull you over for speeding, say, there are some things they're allowed to do, uh, and they can take their appropriate amount of time to do them. That would be uh, look into the t ticket that you receive, look into the traffic violation, do a safety check, figure out if there are any warrants out for the person's, uh, the driver's arrest, make sure the, the license and registration is all in order, sort of all the things that go along with the traffic stop but they're not allowed to extend the period of the stop to pursue criminal law enforcement unless there's some reasonable suspicion to allow that delay. And, and in the Rodriguez case, the issue is whether they could uh, delay the stop in order to do a walk around with a drug-sniffing dog. It took them a few minutes after the stop was over uh, to bring out the dog and, and do that and alert for drugs. But it would also include, for example, asking questions outside the scope of the stop. Uh, and it's a really important decision because the Supreme Court has said that the police are allowed to do these criminal law enforcement related steps as long as they don't measurably extend the duration of the stop. So they could bring out the drug sniffing dog early. Uh, uh, they can do things as long as they don't measurably extend the stop. 
And so really Rodriguez was about whether there are limits on that procedure and whether the police uh, can extend the duration of the stop in order to pursue these law enforcement ends. And the Supreme Court said, no, they cannot. Great. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Chris, do you have anything to add to Oren's description of the majority opinion? And then could you describe uh, the reasoning of Justice Alito's dissent? Uh, Justice Alito said that uh, officers could just learn to conduct the sniff before they gave uh, a ticket or warning, and therefore it was a distinction without a difference. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that. Well, Oren did a superlative job describing the majority opinion um, on the dissent. Yeah, Alito was uh, particularly incensed that the uh, court held what it did because he said, among other things, that um, it is very possible in the facts of this case that the officer had reasonable suspicion to believe that the people stopped were up to no good. And so the majority should have made that finding and allowed the prolongation of the detention based on that finding alone. Uh, thanks for that. Oren, um, Justice Thomas also said that this case uh, basically adopted the principles of the dissent in the Kabbalah's case. Uh, in Kabbalah's, the court said a seizure that's justified solely by the interest in issuing a warning ticket to the driver can become unlawful if it's prolonged beyond the time reasonably required to complete that mission. Justice Thomas felt that uh, Kabbalah's in, involved a, a, a case uh, where there was a reasonable sus suspicion, and in this case, there was probable cause to conduct the further search, and therefore the standard had been extended. Tell, tell us about the relationship between this case and Kabbalah's. Yeah, so in the Kabbalah's case dealt with the question of whether the police could do a drug-sniffing dog sniff when the use of the drug-sniffing dog did not measurably extend the, the, the stop. In that case, there were really two issues. This is the Kabbalah's case from 2005. First, is the use of the drug-sniffing dog a Fourth Amendment search? Uh, and then second, if it's not a search, is that allowed in the context of a routine traffic stop? And in Kabbalah's, the Supreme Court had said the use of the drug-sniffing dog is not a search, and as long as it doesn't measurably extend the duration of the stop, it's okay for the police to do this non-search during the stop. And in other words, you sort of Imagine the authority that the officers have to make the stop uh, to, to, to basically check for traffic violations. And as long as they are doing that, they're allowed to use the drug-sniffing dog, not a search, as long as they're not delaying the person any more than they otherwise would. Uh, and so Rodriguez is really the flip side. What if they do delay the person? Uh, and the lower courts had divided on this question. Some circuits had said as long as the government doesn't delay the stop for too long, it's okay. And that, that created what, you know, using the Latin phrase, the de minimis doctrine, that is just a little bit doctrine. The, some courts had said, yeah, you can extend the stop just a little bit, you know, a couple minutes is fine. And other courts had said, no, you can't extend the stop at all. And the Supreme Court essentially agreed with the lower courts that said you can't extend the stop at all. Uh, and, and actually, I think the most important part about this decision is in for the first time, really, describing the purposes of a traffic stop, in order to then say what kind of time the police should be allowed to make a traffic stop. And, and there's a lot in that decision. It's a very short opinion by the majority. It's only nine, uh, eight and a half pages. But it's very important. The court lays out, here are things that can be done in a traffic stop. Here are things that shouldn't be done in a traffic stop. Here's what uh, will give the police the time to do in a traffic stop. And, and why this matters so much is that from the law enforcement perspective, they often want to take a traffic stop 
for one reason and turn it into a stop for the other. It might be an officer is looking for drugs, and then they pull over somebody for speeding, and really they want to find evidence of drugs. And Rodriguez is a really key case because it imposes at least some limits on the ability of law enforcement to take the stop for one reason and turn it into a stop for the second reason. Interesting. Chris, do you agree with Arne that this is an important case in imposing limits on law enforcement's ability to yes, turn? Yes, I, I think to, it's to a very important case. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. No. I, I think it is a very important case. Um, uh, what Oren just said, I agree with. I think Rodriguez signals that the court is worried about protectural seizures and searches. Um, this is a huge problem in the United States. Every one of us violates multiple traffic laws every time we drive from, from crossing the median or shoulder, which is actually what happened in Rodriguez, to failing to signal, to going over the speed limit, uh, to not wearing a seatbelt, and you know, the list goes on and on. Um, and people, uh, police know this and, and use it to their advantage, especially as a means of trying to discover drug crime. Um, so they stop someone for a violation, then bring out the dogs, as, as in Rodriguez, or they get consent, or say the drugs that they saw were in plain view. Um, and the police are actually trained to use traffic stops this way. Uh, the fact that it happens routinely is borne out by Rodriguez itself, since the cop in that case had a drug dog in his car. Why have a drug dog in a highway cop's car except to find drugs and stop cars? You know, these programs do catch drug careers from time to time, but they also um, cause inconveniences, irritate drivers, even scare drivers, and, and thousands of drivers, completely innocent drivers. Uh, a disproportionate number of them um, are, are people of color. Um, so these kinds of stops, pretextual stops, are used as a form of harassment, exacerbates tensions between the police and the public. Um, and in fact, I think these traffic stops have been, become the modern general warrant, which the Fourth Amendment is supposed to prohibit. Warren, um, could the decision be obviated by technology? Imagine an electronic dog sniff that cops carried around with them on a, on a wand. Uh, if they just uh, electronically sniffed every driver in the course of writing the ticket, wouldn't that be permissible according to the reasoning of the decision? So there, uh, maybe, we don't really know. Um, one would be the Supreme Court would have to extend the idea that dog sniff searches are not, or dog sniffs are not searches to electronic dog sniffs. Maybe they would do that. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they would say that there's a difference between a uh, uh, an, an electronic tool that can identify uh, drugs and a dog. Uh, sort of pos- that's a, we don't know that. It's just a, a possible line they might draw. Um, and even though, even if they do say that the uh, 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 electronic dog, so to speak, is, is allowed, the Rodriguez case is still important because it gets in the way of police questioning, or at least it limits police questioning. Uh, and so here, the police are allowed to ask questions during a traffic stop outside the scope of the traffic stop. They can ask questions that are really about trying to figure out if there are drugs in the car, guns in the car, maybe the person is a drug dealer. And they might ask the person, where are you going? Uh, Where are you heading? Um, Is there anything I need to worry about in the car? And they might ask for consent. You don't mind me searching your car. And even if the police don't get consent, probable cause to believe that there's drugs in the car allows them to search the car without a warrant. But that questioning takes time. And so Rodriguez limits the amount of time that the police have to do that questioning, even if technology can solve the, or address or obviate the, the drug-sniffing dog aspect of this. There's still the questioning part, which technology can't change. Great. I want to return to the questioning part, but first I want to ask Chris, uh, what about the electronic dog sniff in other contexts? The court held in the Hardeen's case that you can't take a 
dog onto the porch because that's the curtilage and private property rights are involved. But if you had the electronic dog sniff, a kind of wand that you could just wave from the sidewalk and could only reveal drugs and couldn't reveal any other intimate activities in the home, would that be okay according to Supreme Court case law? Well, yeah, um, Cabalas seemed to hold that, and so did the earlier place decision. Basically, both of those cases stand for the proposition that if you have a device that only detects evidence of an illegal substance, only detects contraband um, or an illegally possessed weapon, um, then that would be permissible without a warrant. It doesn't even implicate the Fourth Amendment at all. Um, however, I think even though that's what the court's held so far, it's only held that with respect to uh, investigations of luggage and investigations uh, like in Cabalas of a car. And when it turns to an investigation of a house or a person, it, it's conceivable the court would come to a different conclusion. And we have the Kylo case where the court used a thermal imaging device to detect heat differentials inside a home. And Scalia made some pretty strong statements about the sanctity of the house. So even if you have one of these contraband-specific kinds of devices, it's possible the court would draw a line there. Um, Oren, what do you think of this idea of the perfect search? And if we could develop an electronic dog sniff that only revealed drugs and revealed nothing else, do you believe the Fourth Amendment would allow it to be used in all contexts? Yeah, I, I tend to think the Supreme Court would limit that doctrine to just a few contexts and not not all. So, I mean, this is the hypothetical. The government has a magical ability to find drugs everywhere, and they can just press a button and find out where the drugs are everywhere, and that's the only thing they'll find out. I suspect that the Supreme Court would, um, if they had to either accept Kabbalah and that or reject Kabbalah and that, they would overturn Kabbalah at that point. I think that, and, and this is an important point about search and seizure cases generally. A lot of times you'll see a case that seems to adopt a certain principle, and you think, wow, if you follow that principle all the way, you end up with kind of a whole set of results that are disturbing. And often what happens is when the Supreme Court has been confronted with that set of results, they then back down off of the principle or say, oh, no, no, that, that principle only applies in the in the traffic stop context, or that only applies in the dog context. And, and then they carve, you know, they end up carving a line there, and they draw a line, say you can't use this in one context, you can use it in another. So, so I think um, yeah, you can draw hypotheticals based on one Supreme Court opinion saying if they take that uh, principle and, and take it all the way, where do you go? But I, I, oftentimes the Supreme Court just does not work that way. I think there, that we've got nine justices who are pretty practical people, and I think they interpret the Fourth Amendment with an eye to reasonable police practices and uh, what the police can and can't do. And they're, they're, I think, pretty sensitive to the overall balance of police power that results from the decisions they're issuing. So, so I, I tend to think that the hypothetical is one that the Supreme Court would, would not – they would not stick with their current law if they had to in that particular situation. Interesting. Chris, do you agree? And is that the right decision? You mentioned general warrants. And indeed, Senator Mike Lee was here at the Constitution Center last week and gave a passionate denunciation of the general warrants that allowed the king's agents in the revolutionary era to break into lots of people's homes and riffle through their private papers. But if an electronic dog sniff is, in fact, a perfect search that can only reveal contraband and can't reveal any illegal, uh, any embarrassing uh, uh, private information, why shouldn't the court allow it to be used in all circumstances without restrictions. 
Yeah, well, that, that of course, is the argument. Um, on the other hand, even if we could develop such a perfect instrument, and, uh, of course, that right now is a hypothetical, um, deploying that kind of instrument could trigger the Fourth Amendment in other ways. I mean, in order to deploy it against a person, for instance, you'd have to seize the person. Um, in order to deploy it against houses, let's say the police mount one of these on their squad car and just drive up and down streets, um, even though the device would only be detecting contraband-specific kinds of items, there would be this police presence on the streets, and people would know that this device was beaming into their homes. Now, granted, no direct privacy intrusion, but nonetheless, it creates the kind of situation, I think, uh, this at least is an argument that bothered the founders. It's the police um, operating in a general way that is affecting everyone in the populace and could create a sense of oppression, a uh, 1984 kind of scenario, if you will, and I think that might give the court pause. And again, I think especially if it's, uh, this device is being used vis-a-vis -vis houses, where the court seems to have drawn a pretty bright line. Just one more beat on this because it's so interesting. Orrin, do you agree with Chris's description of the injury that the court might recognize in uh, stopping the deployment of these uh, perfect electronic dog searches? Yeah, I, I, I half agree. Um, so I agree that the court would be very – would probably not allow drug-sniffing dog searches of the home, and I think – Basically, they used the Florida versus Hardinez case, the recent case on bringing a drug-sniffing dog up to the front steps of a house as a way of, of blocking that. I, I don't see this as a general warrant problem because the issue here is just um, what is a search, uh, uh, not, not how broadly can a search warrant go. The, the problem with general warrants was they, the government had a warrant. It's just the warrant itself was limited in, or was not limited in terms of where they could go and what they could look for. So I don't see this as a framers era general warrant issue so much as a modern Supreme Court, how they think of the Fourth Amendment question, which in a lot of ways is different. Uh, uh, so they, I think they think of the Fourth Amendment as a way of uh, allowing the police to investigate criminal cases in, in adequate ways and in necessary ways, but also imposing some limits. And, and I think that then gives you kind of a different practical perspective on some of these cases. So the idea uh, that it's not a search if the government investigative technique only reveals the presence or absence of drugs, that started in a 1980s-era case called Jacobson, in which the question was whether the government could field test some seized substance from the defendant that they thought, I think it was cocaine, uh, and they, you know, they seized the item, uh, I think it was uh, cocaine that came from a package, and they tested it, and it tested positive for cocaine, and the owner said, well, you 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 unconstitutionally searched my cocaine. Uh, uh, that was my cocaine. You weren't allowed to take some of it and test it. And the court says, no, that's, that's not a search. That doesn't count. And I think you can practically think of that as just being the justices wanted to allow field testing of cocaine, uh, and, or they wanted to allow uh, dog sniffs, or they wanted to allow these, these techniques in those contexts. And so I think it's from a more practical perspective, the issue is really what can the police do or not do, not so much the the sort of fundamental principle that has to be applied in all cases. Chris, you've written so powerfully about uh, electronic searches more generally. Uh, would the Fourth Amendment allow an electronic uh, dog search for terrorism that only revealed uh, telephone numbers of known terrorists but didn't reveal any other telephone numbers, even if that required hoovering up everyone's telephone number? Yeah. Well, first of all, on whether the Fourth Amendment is triggered or not, um, this is not a position I think the court would adopt, but I think when the police are looking for something, they're searching. 
and that should trigger the Fourth Amendment. At the same time, I don't think that should automatically require probable cause. So in your hypothetical, um, if the police actually have this device, it can only detect phone numbers of terrorists, I think you could use the kind of reasoning we saw in place in Cabalas and Jacobson and say there's nothing or very little of privacy interest that um, is obtained through this search, and therefore virtually no suspicion is required. Um, if, on the other hand, the device did obtain information uh, beyond a terrorist phone number, and I think that's more likely to be the case in the real world, then I'd be more concerned and I would require more justification. In any event, I'd, call, I'd say it's always a search. And it's just a matter of figuring out the justification necessary for that search. In some cases, virtually no justification. In other cases, probable cause. And in other cases, something in between. Warren, do you agree or not? Uh, I, I don't agree. I have a different approach to this. So I think as long as the government is obtaining numbers dialed from the phone company, which is effectively a party to the communications, that is, you dial a phone number to the phone company, you're disclosing your phone com phone number to the to the uh, phone company. It's not a search of you to get the co phone company's records of the calls that you made, uh, regardless of how many people's information is obtained or whether they're terrorists or not. So I agree that I think the Supreme Court's decision in Smith versus Maryland, which is kind of the modern recognition of this idea, uh, I think is correct. And I think, for example, the Section 215 uh, call records program, uh, which which has of course been legally challenged, uh, is constitutional under the Fourth Amendment because no search has occurred. Uh, and I think that really recognizes a, a really important way of applying the Fourth Amendment to computer networks and to communications networks, which is to see communications networks as basically uh, uh, a, a sort of modern-day analog to the traditional way of people sharing information, which is, of course, doing it in person. So if you go out in the world, if I go to visit you at your house, I leave my house, walk over to your house, the police are allowed to watch me in the public street. They know when I left my house. They know where I'm going. They know when I arrived. Uh, and I think metadata, that is the non-content information about communications, is basically the modern network equivalent of what used to be open and exposed in the physical world. So I, I think the, uh, that, that the, getting the non-content information from the telephone company should not be a search at all. Great. Well, since we're on this fascinating and important related topic, Chris, do you agree with Oren that Section 215 uh, is consistent with the Fourth Amendment, uh, much like an electronic dog search, uh, or do you disagree and why? Well, I disagree because, as I said before, I think when the police are looking for something, it's a search. Um, it is true that when the data is obtained from a third party, the phone company, it's not directly searching you. That is the person who's, who dialed the phone number. Um, but at the same time, it is directly affecting your privacy, and I think it's a reasonable expectation of privacy to use the, the, the lingo that the court uses. I mean, I know Orm believes that um, obtaining the content of an email or a phone conversation is a search and that a warrant ought to be required. And I think at the same time, if you really believe in the third-party doctrine, you could say, well, if you get the content of that phone conversation or that email, let's say the content of an email from a server, you're not directly searching the sender of the email, you're searching the server. Um, and I don't think that logic flies. I just don't think it makes any sense. The, the bottom line of the Fourth Amendment is protection of privacy, and I think um, either whether it's the content or the metadata, there is a privacy associated with that information, though perhaps at a different level, which is, goes back to what I said before, that maybe probable cause shouldn't always be required, for instance, to obtain metadata. 
Uh, Orrin, I know that the courts are debating the constitutionality of Section 215. Uh, tell us about alternatives to the third-party doctrine that are being debated in Congress and the lower courts and what you think of those – what you think the most uh, convincing alternative is. Oh, you know, I don't think there are any convincing alternatives. It's one of the most fascinating aspects of the constitutional debate here, which is uh, there are a lot of critics of the third-party doctrine. That is the rule that when you disclose information to somebody else, it becomes kind of their information and you no longer have Fourth Amendment rights in it. Um, the, a lot of critics say that should not be the case. You should be able to retain Fourth Amendment rights and information that you've told to somebody else, kind of you – you get rights in what you told somebody else. They can't tell the police because you still have rights in what they know. Um, and then the question becomes, okay, well, when do you have those rights? Do you always have those rights? Uh, you know, if I decide to walk outside in public, is it, do you need a warrant to watch me in public? Or have I given up my rights because I've exposed my appearance to everyone? And, and you run into a really hard question if you do say that you can reveal information to somebody and yet still have protection in what you have revealed to that person. What, when do you have that, retain that right, and when do you not retain that right? And what I think is really interesting is that the critics of the third-party doctrine usually don't want to answer that question. And, and Chris, I think, is, is the, the sole exception that I've been able to find. He, he has a framework for how he would say the Fourth Amendment should apply, uh, and it's a sort of a, uh, he can discuss it, obviously, himself. So, so, so Chris has an answer to this question. Um, but most others don't seem to have an answer to this. They just say what, whatever the rule is, it shouldn't be the current rule. Great. Well, thanks to Oren for teeing up the question so well. Chris, what is your alternative to the third-party doctrine? Well, well, I, I've been uh, alluding to it in the last couple of answers. Um, it is this proportionality idea that just because something's a search, that should not mean the government needs probable cause. Now, unfortunately, I think the court and most of the court's critics have bought into this idea that if something's a search, probable cause is required, and that would be a disaster. Um, first of all, I don't think it represents th the proportionality I'm talking about. In other words, there are some kinds of searches that are nowhere near as intrusive as the paradigmatic search of the bedroom or the content of a phone conversation. But also, if probable cause were required for every single search, it would basically shut down law enforcement because there are a lot of preliminary techniques that are designed to develop probable cause that couldn't advance at all if probable cause were required. But at the same time, I don't think that in those situations where we can't get probable cause, we should automatically say, oh, well, the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply at all, um, either because of the third-party doctrine or some other rationale. I think, again, we should define search very broadly and then modulate the justification based on the degree of intrusion. Now, the big problem with this and the reason uh, both advocates of the third-party doctrine and some people who don't like it don't buy my approach is that it does create some hard line-drawing problems. There's no doubt about it. Uh, however, without going into detail, I think I've developed a pretty good way, even if somewhat arbitrary way, of drawing those lines uh, based on the duration of the search or the kind of information that's being obtained uh, by the search. So that's the general principle. Uh, you can think of it in terms of warrants versus court orders based on reasonable suspicion uh, versus subpoenas versus nothing. Uh, sort of a hierarchy of justifications. 
Great. Well, you can read more about Chris's alternative to the third-party doctrine called the proportionality principle and Oren's uh, preferred alternative where he uh, focuses on controls of the use of data in the thrilling volume Constitution 3.0, Freedom and Technological Change, edited by yours truly and Ben Wittes of the Brookings Institution. And you can get that free online at the Future of the Constitution series. I want to return to the Rodriguez case for a moment. Uh, Oren, you had an interesting exchange with uh, Mark Joseph Stern in Slate. Uh, Stern focused on Chief Justice Roberts, who ruled for the defense in Rodriguez, but the government in a recent case called Hain or Hine versus North Carolina. And Stern speculated that the Chief Justice uh, got religion, that he might have, he, well, you're quoting from Stern, it could be that in the last few months, Roberts got pulled over and apparently for the first time in his life, finally grasps how fraught such encounters are. You were not persuaded by that example of judicial psychologizing. Tell us why. Yeah, it's always hard to know why a particular justice came out a particular way. And I think there's there's too much of a tendency for for folks to think that if a justice who they thought probably was going to disagree with them suddenly agrees with them, that suddenly they 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 had a, an epiphany and, and realized the true nature of the world and, and realized that I was right all along. You know, I, I think that kind of reasoning is, is seductive, but ultimately, you know, it, it doesn't tell you anything because we don't know why the justices ruled the way they ruled. Um, although I, I would say that, you know, Chief Justice Roberts is an interesting vote in, in Fourth Amendment cases. Uh, he replaced Chief Justice Rehnquist, who was the police officer's friend in many ways. Chief Justice Rehnquist was very law enforcement oriented in, in Fourth Amendment cases. It's hard to think of a Fourth Amendment case in which Chief Justice Rehnquist voted for a defendant that was not a, a unanimous decision. And Chief Justice Roberts is much more complicated, I think. He's, he's more in the center on these issues. Um, he's, he's not as, as strongly on the law enforcement side. And, and that's really an interesting development, because if you look at the last few terms of the Supreme Court's Fourth Amendment cases, in the argued cases, the ones that, that actually sort of there was a circuit split and the Supreme Court figures out what are we going to do, um, I looked at uh, there have been 11 cases in the last three terms the government won six and the defense won five. Uh, so we have a court where, that actually is, is, is not a pro-law enforcement, government wins every case kind of court. We saw this in the cell phone search case, Riley versus California, a 9-0 win for the defense uh, just last year with Chief Justice Roberts writing. It, it's a more divided court and a more interesting court from my perspective, trying to figure out the answers to these questions as best they can. Uh, fascinating. Chris, what is your take on the unexpected alliances in these uh, cases. We saw on the Hardina's case, that decision was written by none other than Justice Scalia, joined by Thomas Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan. The dissenters there were Roberts, Kennedy, and Breyer. Scalia is very focused on private property uh, in these Fourth Amendment cases, but doesn't like general warrants. How would you analyze the uh, breakdown about the court and the Fourth Amendment? Yeah, it, it, I agree with Warren. It's hard to figure out what the motivation is behind any one justice's decision. I think there may be a trend. We've seen more defendant-friendly cases in the last three or four years when the search has been carried out by technology. And the, the, that's the Riley case. I, I would call Jardinus a, a technology case in the sense that he's a drug-sniffing dog. We have the Jones case involving tracking uh, electronically. And I think conceivably one thing that's going on is that when technology is involved, when sophisticated technology is involved, the justices are more likely to personalize the experience because they can be easily affected by technological surveillance um, covertly. 
as well as overtly. And there's that famous statement by Chief Justice Roberts during the Jones oral argument when he basically said, you mean they can put a GPS on my car and follow me around without any authorization? And I think what that might indicate, and again, this is speculation, is the justices are starting to realize that their traditional take on the scope of the Fourth Amendment isn't working and, in fact, is likely to come back and boomerang on them and their kin and people they know in a way they don't like. So that may help explain what's going on at the court right now. But again, there, there are lots of other possible explanations as well. Great. Oren, I want to ask you about uh, a hypothetical that appears in that penetrating and brilliant volume, Constitution 3.0. We've discussed it often, but, you know, the, uh, the law is evolving. So the idea is uh, the government tomorrow flies uh, in the air tiny drone cameras and reserves the right to follow any individual 24-7 for a month without a warrant. No physical trespass, so not clearly covered by current law. How would the current Supreme Court rule on the constitutionality of that 24-7 virtual search? Uh, we don't know. Uh, so there, there are really two aspects of it. There's the um, how the drone was used at any particular time. For example, did they go into private airspace? Uh, if they came onto your property and you own the airspace, for example, that might be a search independently of the time element. And then the second aspect of this is, is, is does a non-search become a search over time because you can collect more information by monitoring somebody over a window of time uh, an extensive window of time uh, I instead of a short period of time. And that's sort of what I've called the, the mosaic theory, that after a while the government is able to get a mosaic of the person's life. And, and um, I, I tend to think if push comes to shove, the Supreme Court will not adopt the mosaic idea. Uh, it, it sort of it, it is, can be seen in a page or two of the concurring opinions in the Jones cases, uh, but I tend to think that that was um, – uh, a somewhat under-reasoned uh, opportunity, and the justices probably would not go to, uh, would not embrace that logic if they had another case that squarely presented the issue. But, but the truth is, we don't know. It's it's, it's really an open question. Interesting, uh, Chris. How would and how should the court rule in the case of twenty-four-seven drone surveillance that takes place without trespass? Right. Of course, consistent with what I said before, I would consider that a search, um, and then. I would apply proportionality reasoning, which is basically another name for mosaic reasoning. Again, Warren might be right. The court might not go that direction, again, because of the line drawing problem. But if it did, I could see uh, the lines drawn according to duration of the surveillance. Um, there's one other issue I think it's, it's important to talk about that we've, we've alluded to but haven't dealt with directly, and that is setting up the surveillance program to begin with, uh, You know, setting up the infrastructure so you can collect metadata and then collecting the metadata. Uh, setting up the drone program, setting up CCTV. Um, I don't know if I would call that a search. That is, until a person is targeted, until a particular person is targeted, I don't know if there's a search there for Fourth Amendment purposes. I think there has to be some legislative authorization for that program. The search, though, occurs uh, when they target a particular individual, and if they target an individual for 24 hours, I think that's clearly a search, and I, I would require at least reasonable suspicion and again, if it goes m much longer than that, I would require, require even more justification, because to me, uh, that's exactly what the Fourth Amendment is uh, designed to prevent, is unjustified monitoring of a person's uh, activities, whether they're inside a home or outside the home. <clears throat> Great. Well, we've moved from dogs to drones, uh, and it's now time for closing arguments. Oren, <laughs> what is... <laughs> 
um, uh, what is the significance of the Rodriguez case and what are the open questions about traffic stops and dog sniffs that the court will confront over the coming years? Well, the significance of the case is that it puts a limit on the ability of police to take a traffic stop, uh, which is just for speeding or a taillight out, and turn it into a drug investigation. Uh, the big questions going forward is whether the police will be allowed to manipulate that rule, for example, doing the drug-sniffing dog test early on, uh, or will the police be allowed to just slow down the whole stop waiting for the drug-sniffing dogs? How much are the police or, or sorry, how much of the courts going to scrutinize the pace of traffic stops in order to say whether the police are acting in an expeditious way, which is really an issue made salient because of the use of cameras in squad cars, which can really, you know, that's a video of the entire stop, which allows the courts to scrutinize what happens in a traffic stop much more closely than they used to. Fascinating. Uh, Chris, your thoughts on the significance of the Rodriguez case and open issues moving forward? Well, well, I think uh, theoretically Rodriguez is very significant. I think practically, as we've already suggested, police can work around the rule in Rodriguez, just like they work around everything else. They can make sure the dog sniff takes place during the issuance of the citation. They can slow down the citation process to give time for a colleague to show up with the dog or for protection purposes. But I still think focusing first on the practical impact, it could have a real impact. Going back to what I, I, I started talking about, uh, police are trained to do this kind of thing. There's this program called Operation Pipeline, which is a federal program explicitly designed to use traffic stops as a way of interdicting drugs. And that program, officers are trained to hand out the citation. And then after they've done that, say to the driver, uh, before you leave, let me ask you one more question. You got any drugs or contraband in your car? Well, of course, the person's going to say no. And then the cop says, well, then you wouldn't mind if I search your car, would you? to which the person is basically trapped at this point, usually consents. Uh, but if the person does say no, as occurred in Rodriguez, uh, Rodriguez makes pretty clear the cop can't use the traffic stop as a means of further detention. So I think that's a very practical impact of Rodriguez. Now, of course, a lot of the time the person is going to say yes. Um, and here, again, Rodriguez might have an impact because I think Rodriguez provides a wedge in the door to argue that even non-traffic stop searches and questioning um, that take place during a lawful traffic stop should be considered inappropriate. That, what I'm trying to say is even if um, the police action takes place during a lawful traffic stop, it perhaps would be considered inappropriate if it's not focused on what the traffic stop is all about, uh, which would mean, for instance, uh, that police should be able to resort to um, non-traffic-related types of investigative techniques, whether it's dogs or questions of the type Warren was talking about, or even computerized searches for outstanding warrants that have nothing to do with the purpose of the original action, unless they see evidence in plain view right there on the front seat or unless they develop reasonable suspicion uh, that, as a result of the traffic stop. Uh, I could say a lot more about that, but I think those are some thoughts about the implications of Rodriguez. Well, thank you for those very practical and illuminating thoughts about Rodriguez. You just noted that if the cops do ask you after issuing you a ticket, if you mind, if they look around the rest of your car, just say no, according to Chris Slobogan. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Oren Kerr and Chris Slobogan, for a truly illuminating discussion of uh, one of the most fascinating cases of 
uh, uh, recent weeks. Uh, next week, we will have an all-star blockbuster podcast about the constitutional oral arguments involving marriage equality. So please be sure to join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. And until then, on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. <laughs>